When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Thursday, July 8th. I'm Samuel Burke, joined by my co-host Jack Farley, and our guest today, Peter Bookvar. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, which manages $8 billion in wealth. And he's also the author, or editor, I should say, of the book report. Get it? Let's do a review of what we're going to be talking about with you today, Peter. Of course, you've seen stock markets down all across the world. If you've been watching some of the other financial networks, they might have been talking uh, in panic. We don't do that on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're going to put that into perspective with Peter. And Jack, I know if I'm talking about stocks going down, you're inevitably going to be talking about bond yields going down. Of course, Samuel, the backdrop to the chaos roiling equity markets is that the rundown in yields, the bond market rally, has continued with the 10-year yield today perched below 1.27 for some time. Uh, and it continued its uh, rally for the, ten, excuse me, the eighth day in a row. Of course, this is important because investors are pricing in lower growth, we think, and lower inflation, we know, because of it's measured from the tips yield. Um, and Peter Bookfar has his eye all over that trade. So I want to uh, ask him what he's thinking about it. Sam. And we can't mention inflation without talking about the European Central Bank today, changing their target all of a sudden to 2%. But if it goes past that, no big problem, they say. So we will take viewer questions. But now we want to put all these issues to Peter. Peter, we look at markets going down all across the globe today. Just Give us some context. What was your reaction? And do you think it's fair to say that people were fairly caught off guard? Well, the S&P 500 basically closed at last Wednesday's uh, level. So we just gave back a couple of days of trading. I think that the setup going into today and going into this week generally has been over the last couple of weeks or even more uh, a weakening breadth of the market where uh, the Russell 2000 in particular topped out in March. And we've seen other areas of the market that have topped out subsequently with just big cap tech sort of carrying the wagon uh, just recently. That combined with ebullient um, sentiment as measured by uh, at least the investor's intelligence number that I saw on Wednesday where bulls got above 60, which I consider extreme, and bears are down to 15 and a half. And with a spread north of 45, just barely, uh, is considered extreme too. Then you throw in a variety of overbought metrics uh, which told me that we were due for uh, a pullback, but I didn't know, of course, when and, and from what level. And it just happened to be today because I think that uh, the flattening of the yield curve getting to the point that is at with the 10-year breaking below 130, even though it closed just slightly under, uh, was a wake-up call that something's going on. I need to start paying attention to it. What is that something? Well, I think that a couple of things. And, and, and before I get to that thing, the, the perspective is that we entered the year with a tenure at 90 basis points 
the five-year at 35 basis points. And that started to incorporate the November, uh, early November news from Pfizer about the efficacy of, of the vaccine, which then led to obviously a rally in, in, in the reopening trade and a belief that, okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then the first three months of this year, we saw a rather sharp rise in rates, of course, because of, uh, I believe, pricing in the inflation numbers that we're seeing now. So what we're seeing now in the economy and the data is hot inflation that is now actually beginning to slow parts of the economy, a stagflationary type situation. And you can look at that in housing, where home price increases have been so aggressive that it is now moderating the pace of transactions. Auto factories that are, that are shutting down for weeks at a time because they can't get enough semiconductors and steel and paint to paint the sides of the cars. Uh, we've seen it also in restaurants that can't open seven days a week or have to close at nine instead of 11 because they don't have enough people. That is a slowing of growth because of supply of product, materials, and labor. So I think that is what the market is, is honing in on. In addition to a lot of this flattening occurred the day, beginning the day after the Fed had their June meeting, where they talked about tapering finally. And if you look back at every QE on and off cycle, we saw a similar reaction in the yield curve. After QE1 and QE2 began, well, let me start. After QE1 started, you know, on paper, the Fed buys treasuries because they want to lower interest rates. And on paper, when they stop, rates are supposed to rise. But the exact opposite happens because when QE is on, the market interprets that as reflationary and stimulative. Therefore, when that's happened and happened after QE1, QE2, QE3, the yield curve steepened. When QE ended, in, in after the first three rounds, the curve then flattened dramatically. So I think the playbook going into this was, okay, if the Fed is going to start the process of tapering, whether it happens in September or December, whatever, it's happening soon. Therefore, what's the trade? Flatten the curve, buy the dollar, sell the cyclicals and, and, and commodity stocks, and, and buy the, the growthy uh, parts of the market that will grow regardless of of any economic slowdown because of uh, the contractionary nature of, of Fed tightening. And I think that's what we've seen. We stretched it too much on the upside in yield back in March when we got to near 180. We were dramatically oversold in bonds. And now we're actually dramatically overbought. So I think that at least for the next couple of months, there's going to be this tug of war between, I believe, we'll still see very sticky inflation all through this year into next year. But on the, but on the other hand, the slowdown that higher inflation inflicts on an economy that will lead to buyers of long-term treasuries. So, and while tips break-evens have fallen, I don't think treasuries are rallying years of falling because all of a sudden inflation is going away. I think there's a growth issue here. And like I said, a natural trade that goes on when the Fed is about to uh, tighten policy, however slow, however glacial it'll be. And Jack, I want, to, I, I want to get you in here, but there's just one point there I want to say, because it's something that Jack and Darius Dale have brought up. When you see something like uh, commodities like copper, when you see lumber that went way up and have come back down, people say there's transitory, or someone pointed out, to just say temporary, temporary inflation 
coming back down. So what do you say to people who point those out in, in, in this bigger picture that you're uh, pointing out uh, about inflation? Okay, so people I know, can, they pick and choose certain commodities. Uh, the, like CRB the CRB Raw Industrials Index is something that I like to look at because there are components that don't trade on futures exchanges and therefore is not bowled around by speculators. It therefore reflects more of a pure supply-demand dynamic. It has burlap, it has tallow in it, uh, to give two examples. Yesterday, it closed at a 10-year high. The CRB Food Index closed yesterday at just 4% from an all-time high. The CRB Index, including commodities that we all know, uh, is 2.5% off a six-year high. So this perception that, okay, because lumber prices have fallen and copper's off its high, well, oil prices are at $73. That's just off the highest level since late 2014. Natural gas prices are at the highest level since early 2015. So for every commodity that you name that has fallen, most are still very elevated. Most are still at multi-year highs. But that's just one component of the whole inflation debate. And, and I've spoken on Real Vision before is, you know, I like, I don't just look at inflation holistically, I break it down between services and goods. There's no such thing as transitory services inflation unless you have a pandemic. Uh, assuming that won't happen for a while, services inflation is always persistently higher. And I will argue that right now, considering what we're seeing at home prices, that you're going to see quite an acceleration in services inflation, particularly driven by rents. Uh, that will start to show up in a more pronounced fashion if the apartment list national report is any indication that is showing one to three percent month over month increases, not year over year, month over month increases, at least almost every single month this year. So the debate on inflation being temporary or not is really just talking about the good side. And yeah, historically, technology production efficiency leads to is a depressant on goods prices, uh, particularly in technology. And you look out over the past 20 plus years pre-COVID, goods inflation in the CPI number is averaged zero, but services inflation is averaged almost 3%. So now we have services inflation that is going to be back to trend or higher, and we have the most intense price pressures on the goods side since the 1970s. So they're not just going to go away like the, tr the temporary transitory camp thinks, I think it's going to be more sticky. And one of the reasons I think that is the case is one of the key components also of this run of very low goods inflation has been just-in-time inventory. That is a very efficient way of running a supply chain because, hey, a builder building a home, the second they need that washer and dryer in their HVAC system, boom, it shows up that day. The second they need that electrician to throw that wiring uh, through the framing before they put up the sheetrock, boom, it's there on time. Uh, but now I think that that is dead. You're going to have more stocking of inventory, which leads to higher cash needs, higher working capital needs as part of that, lower inventory turns, and what will likely be lower productivity and, and likely higher prices uh, to mitigate some of that. So I don't think we're going to snap our finger and, and bring back uh, a, a lot of the supply that will mitigate this. Now, yeah, lumber prices got way too ahead of themselves, and I'm sure we're going to come off the boil soon on transportation costs, which are literally going through the roof. 
Uh, but just because they come off the boil doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're going to go back to where we were pre-COVID. This is going to be sticky. And we don't need high inflation for there to be a problem for, for global markets. If you show me 3% inflation for the next two years consistently, I'll show you a problem for the markets and the Fed and other central banks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Peter, uh, I've got a lot of questions based on that, but I actually think this is a perfect opportunity to show a clip from an interview tomorrow where Steve Clapham is interviewing legendary value investor Mario Gabelli, where Gabelli actually shares his thoughts on inflation. Let's take a look. We had a director of one of my companies who I met somewhere in the early 90s. His name was Dr. Carl Perl. He was the head of the Bundesbank. And as you might remember, going back to 1922-3, inflation just went straight up in Germany. And so he remembered that. And he had a statement that's still in my mind. Inflation is like toothpaste. Once it gets out of the tube, it's going to be very hard to put back in. So in that context, we are obviously sensitive about wage inflation today. The commodity prices, you know, like lumber go from 400 to 2,000 back to 800, and some of them are due to pre-ordering. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, something we deal with. The question is, if inflation comes back, what rate will it be? And at what rate will it impact the 10-year bond? And what happens to the 10-year bond on multiples of what uh, companies are going to sell in the marketplace and what they're going to be done on a, on a financial transaction? So that airs tomorrow on the Essential tier available to all Real Vision Essential members. Peter, I want to ask you about this clip. Do you think that Mario Gabelli is right? Is inflation like a tube of toothpaste? And if so, how? Well, I think that we've seen bouts of inflation that have been actually transitory in the past. So it is possible that it recedes. I don't think it's the case because I'm seeing inflation everywhere. It's not like just one spot, where in 2007, 2008, it was just commodity prices, or 2004, 2005, it was mostly housing. Now it's coming from everywhere. And then you throw in, as, 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 as Gabelli said in the clip, you're talking about wage price, wage increases that are also uh, intensifying, which you can be sure companies will do their best to recoup uh, that cost either through higher productivity gains, which you hope, but more likely, higher prices, which then also just embeds inflation uh, out of that toothpaste tube that makes it even more difficult uh, to put back in, as he said. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, Peter, is let's say you're right. Let's say the inflation CPI print that we get next week is, is hot, let's say 0.8. And let's say it's hot for uh, next month, too, and the month after. To what degree do you think that long-term yields could actually continue to go down because the market thinks that the Federal Reserve will be, quote, ahead of the curve, and they'll, they'll, they will take the punch bowl away before everyone gets, gets too drunk. In other words, what, is there anything that you could say to a fervent bond bull, uh, Peter, that would actually give them pause? Well, first thing is, in their policy of inflation symmetry is telling the market they will purposely be behind the curve. 
because they're telling you they're willing to tolerate a period of time of above, above their 2% target inflation. Now, they want to say a moderate uh, uh, exceeding of that, that level. But either way, they're telling you they will purposely be behind the curve. I think if you see those levels of, of, of core CPI, 5, 10, 6, 10, 7 tenths, for the next three months, you will get a repeat of the first quarter of this year. Now, of course, you'll have people say, oh, well, that'll be transitory too. Well, the 1970s, I guess, technically was, was transitory, right? That inflation, because it eventually went away. Even though it didn't really go away, only the rate of change slowed. You know, inflation is always persistently higher. Every single year, pretty much, inflation goes up. It's just the rate of change that we're debating here. So I don't think as a fixed income bondholder uh, that you're going to tolerate five, six, seven tenths uh, increases. And and what's the Fed's response function? They say, oh, yeah, we have the tools to deal with it. Right. They, they, they have the tools, but they certainly don't have the guts to deal with it because they know the ramifications of this. And it will get really interesting as we look to the back half of the year that if and I say if, because I can definitely be wrong on this inflation story, if we continue to see hot inflation numbers, is what does Jay Powell do? Jay Powell's term ends February 2022. Now, he either wants to get the heck out of Dodge and say, here are the keys. I don't want to deal with this anymore because I, you know, I just don't want to be there. And But if, if that's the case, well, he's not going to want to screw this up. So he's not going to want to aggressively hike because of the economic and market consequences of that. And when I say hike, they're not even thinking about hiking. We're just talking about tapering. Right. And but on the other hand, if he wants the job where he's gonna have to keep he's gonna have to keep things calm too by not aggressively doing that. But the problem is is that if inflation remains sticky, he may not have a say. You know, for 13 plus years of QE and zero rates and negative rates, central banks have been able to do whatever they've wanted to do because inflation has remained quiet. If inflation is no longer quiet, it may not be up to the Fed. The Fed did nothing to instigate the sharp rise in interest rates we saw in the first quarter of this year. Just a few weeks ago, the five-year yield was north of 90 basis points from 35 at the beginning of the year. That's essentially two rate hikes by the Fed. Now, I don't think the Fed is going to be in so much control that they think they, they, that they have if these inflation numbers month after month remain at elevated levels. And like I said before, you will likely see a repeat of the first quarter and the bond market saying, I'm not going to wait around for the Fed to respond to this. I'm going to respond for myself. So you can't talk about inflation without talking about the US dollar. So I just want to put up a tweet from Rao Pal, the co-founder of Real Vision. And just something that got a lot of traction online today was this chart that he put up along with this message saying, so far this thread is playing out. The dollar should be the next to go, up, to go, but the DeMar count suggests a bounce first. If the dollar does rise sharply while bond yields are falling fast, we will likely see a value at risk shock in equities and commodities. Could it hit Bitcoin too? Possibly, he says. You probably are more interested in the dollar side than the Bitcoin side, so I'm curious to get your take on that, Peter. Well, he, yeah, if the dollar rallies, that will be a, a, a further tightening of, of conditions here. Uh, that's possible. But I, I, I don't see much of a risk of a sharp dollar rally. We've had a little dollar bounce here. And 
I, I don't think the dollar is going to get away from us uh, to the upside. So that's not what concerns me. Uh, if inflation does remain uh, elevated here, you know, that's typically currency negative. And if the Fed is going to just crab walk their way in tapering, uh, that will be further currency negative. So the, the dollar, but he's right. If the dollar is rallying, that'll be a problem. I just don't necessarily think that that will be the driver of the next problem. Peter, I've got a question for you, which you say that crab walking around tapering will not be good for the dollar. But what if every other central bank is also crab walking and they're walking even slower? Do you think there's a possibility the dollar could be something like the the least burned tree in the forest, so to speak? So when I get uh, you know a question so much that I always like to look at the dollar euro. Okay, so let's look at Europe. Deeply negative interest rates, a bond bubble of epic proportion, sclerotic growth that you know is seeing a, a little cyclical rebound, um, political issues that always flare up, uh, a central bank trying to make policy for 17, 18 different countries, uh, satisfying no one, and a banking system that just bleeds every day with negative interest rates. You throw me all that information, I tell you that the dollar versus the euro would be below a dollar. But it's not. It's 118. It bottomed at 104 years ago. Well, why isn't, why isn't the euro weaker? After everything we've thrown at the euro, well, you have a current account surplus the Europe, Europe has with us. So there are more dollars being shipped there every single day relative to what's coming here. There's a, there's a structural problem with the dollar if it can't rally against the euro. If it can't rally against the yen, uh, yeah, yeah, it can rally against the Turkish lira. It'll have its days in the sun against the Brazilian real. But you know, the dollar versus the Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar is near the highest level in years. It can't even rally against the Mexican peso. So what's what's going to get the dollar to rally significantly if it hasn't done so to this point? And just staying on Europe, you saw today the European Central Bank crab walking, as some might call it here, announcing basically that they're revising their inflation target. Before, it was always below 2%. Now they're saying 2%, but if consumer prices climb, OK, above 2%, we're fine with that as well. Isn't this really just putting themselves in line with pretty much every other central bank out there? Or should I read deeper into it, Peter? It's doing exactly what they're all doing. But this is this is the, the bureaucratic government institutional thought process is do something to fix a problem. And if it doesn't work, doesn't fix the problem, just do more of it. And if that doesn't work, just do even more of it. Don't take a step back. Don't, don't self-reflect. It's just keep doing more of the same. And, and at the same time, shift the goalposts. And that's what the ECB is doing. It, it's, they want higher inflation, but when we actually get it, uh, they want even more of it because the ECB has realized, and, and, and I sort of got this tidbit from Peter Pratt was on uh, Bloomberg Television yesterday. He was the ex-chief economist, the former chief economist of the ECB. And he, and he was asked the question, what do you think about negative interest rates? And here's a guy that was there when they implemented it. He, and, he, and he admitted, well, we only thought that that was going to be temporary. Well, there's nothing like the permanency of a temporary government program. And that's what we're seeing here. 
And now it's basically negative rates forever. It's QE forever in Europe. And God forbid what happens to their bond market if inflation actually see, exceeds their target for a period of time and the Germans go batshit and they actually have to start reversing some of this. And Peter, and, I've go got, ahead, Jack. Yeah, I've got a question, which is how are you viewing this as an investment opportunity if QE is an eternal state of nature, if the bank balance sheet is never going to roll over, does that mean that technologies and growth uh, stocks, dominance over value stocks will continue as well? Does it mean you want to be bearish, bullish bonds? How are you seeing as playing this? I know you're very, you remain very long uh, energy stocks as well as financials and, and REITs. Yeah, so in the financials, I'm only long banks in Asia uh, because they, they haven't totally destroyed them just yet. Uh, there's actually a yield curve. So um, energy stocks, ag, uh, gold and silver, I remain very bullish on. And just emerging Asian markets, generally speaking, because valuations are much more attractive. I think U.S. technology stocks, you know, the fundamentals are, are there. It's just they, they just have valuation issues, I believe, that may not matter for a while. I'm not certainly not going to call top on U.S. tech stocks. That's been a a worthless proposition to do for a while. But what matters to valuations is if there's a change in interest rates, if there's a change in Fed policy. And we are on the cusp of a change in Fed policy. And when Fed, the Fed is easing, who cares if you're paying 30, 40, 50 times? What's the difference of, on earnings or even sales? But when the Fed is tightening, however glacial, however slow it'll be, uh, then you have to be a little more focused on, on, on valuations. And I think that notwithstanding the recent bounce in tech, uh, if I'm right on inflation, if I'm right on Fed policy beginning to change in a couple months, then there could be another rethink on tech valuations, just as there was in the first quarter of this year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Jack's going to get to the viewer questions, but I just have one more question to get in to tie these past two topics together, ECB and energy. Madam Lagarde also saying in this statement today, that they're going to be factoring in climate change when they do these reports now as well. And of course, pushing for more green bonds. Your take on the ECB getting involved in, in this wave? So I know the ECB's mandate is price stability. So I'm not sure how focusing on climate change sort of meshes with that. Uh, I think that they're you know, expanding and picking and choosing what they should be doing for political reasons. If they believe in, in renewables, that's fine. But to use the institution of the ECB to accomplish that, I think, is major overreach. Um, maybe we'll wake up tomorrow and they buy a construction company to build more apartments in Berlin because there's maybe a lack of housing there. Uh, that would be another form of overreach. So they are picking and choosing where they politically think that um, we, we should see change. Uh, I, so you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of it. That has nothing to do with climate change, generally speaking, and how we address it. I just don't think that 
I don't I don't see the relevancy of monetary policy there. Um, but I don't see the monetary relevance of QE to begin with. Um, so that's here. We've got a question from uh, Mario. I, I don't think it's Mario Gabelli, although who knows? It, it could be. Mario wants to know what are Peter's thoughts on airlines or reflation stocks in general? Peter, you know, airlines had a huge run up, but they've been scrambling on the back foot for a few months now. What are you thinking about that? And I'll just throw out another reopening sector there, offices. Peter, I believe you're in your office now. I am back in the office. Um, but, you know, if, if the steely-eyed financial CEOs of financial institutions, if they can't get their people back in the office, who can? So uh, airlines and offices. So air airlines, um, I, I rather than buying airlines, I, I prefer buying sort of the picks and shovels to airlines of owning airports, uh, owning um, maintenance and repair companies. Uh, that's sort of agnostic to which airline is, 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 a, is, is doing better than the other. As long as there are more planes in the sky, uh, those companies would benefit, and even the airline leasing companies. I do think that business travel is certainly impaired and won't get back to where it was for a while, but I think it will surprise people in getting back to close to where it was. I think that um, people do want to get out. I think people want to see uh, clients face-to-face. -face. I think leisure travel is an unstoppable force that was only temporarily stunted by COVID. I think the travel and vacation numbers out of Asia over the next 10 years are going to be tremendous. So I would play, I own trip.com, for example, as a way of playing travel, as opposed to owning uh, an outright airline. I think in the real estate space, the REIT space, uh, office in New York and San Francisco is completely unattractive to me both because of, of, of population shifting to other parts of the country, uh, but also because of the excessive supply. But to me, office in, in Sunbelt states is, is rather attractive. And that uh, I think the issue with getting people back to the office, particularly in New York, is the commute. People are exhausted by hour and a half commutes and driving to the train station and getting on the train. And then once you get to the city, you have to get to the subway or walk 10, 15 minutes. But in, in other Sunbelt uh, areas, uh, to use that as an example, or even if you're in Denver, for example, and you can just drive from your house straight to your office, that is an under an hour, that is much more appealing. So I'd rather own office REITs in those markets. Uh, and I find REITs in, in, in Asian, there are plenty of Singapore REITs that, that, that are attractive, that are paying 4 or 5% uh, dividend yields. Um, I think that people can get yield you just have to expand your your geography uh, of choices outside of the U.S. And if you can work for a New York office with a New York salary in a state like Florida and only have to pay their state taxes or not have to pay their state taxes in the case of Florida, then why not? Uh, we have another question coming in from George. Curious what Peter thinks about the impact of the oil price on other commodity equities. Does he stick to futures? Does it not affect their bottom line until later? I prefer... Just the, the, the slippage and the role of, of, of futures, uh, I just prefer to own um, oil and gas stocks instead. Uh, a lot of them are trading below where they were pre-COVID, even though prices are much higher. I think that is because people question the sustainability of prices, obviously the whole shift, the ESG shift. And But you look at tobacco stocks the last 20, 30 years, they've been star performers. 
Uh, you know what commodity has ripped recently? Coal. Okay. So uh, there is there is life for energy stocks in the years to come. Uh, it's not, you know, just own them and close your eyes. I just own them for the next probably year or two. Uh, but I still think that there's a lot of upside uh, potential because allocations to energy, even after this run, are still so small and its percentage uh, of the S&P is still minute. Peter, the final question we have is from Tom. Tom, which has year end, uh, Peter, what's your year-end prediction for gold and the 10-year yield? And I uh, want to hone in on gold because, Peter, you know, yields, excuse me, real yields are deeply negative. I think the real 10-year uh, yield is something like negative one, which is very, very negative. You would think that would sort of be the promised land for gold. But here we are at 1800 And, you know, I don't want to be a snob, but we're, we're something like $300, $350 away from the peak that we saw last summer. So what do you think is going on for gold? And then TomTom Tom also wants to know about the 10-year yield. So I'm, I'm never good with price targets or, or, or picking a point in time and saying this is where it should be. Uh, all I'm confident on is that gold and silver prices will be much higher in the years to come. As And if I'm right on the not temporary rise in inflation, that'll be sooner rather than later, like this year uh, into next year, as real rates take another leg lower. And my cautious uh, bearishness on the dollar, I'll call it, uh, resumes its downward trend after any maybe bounce that we're currently seeing, which can play out for sure. Uh, yields, well, <laughs> I got to tell you that the, the direction of the 10-year has, has rewarded me in the sense that I'm not short treasuries. I'm just, I, I have been cautious on the durate, long duration and have chosen short duration. So, you know, I, I've been, so you measure whether you're right or wrong on whatever time frame you pick. Um, I was dead right being bearish on bonds late last year, certainly into March. I've been still right up to today, but certainly less right. Uh, I Calling where the 10-year is going to be at the end of the year, I don't, it's really tough. I want to say it's going to be higher because I think inflation is going to really surprise people in its persistency. And I think that the, the Fed is going to lose some control over uh, the long end. Uh, I understand the drop in yields just recently, again, because of the the, the, the stagflationary concerns of the market and the knee-jerk reaction to Fed tightening, as we talked about earlier, you flatten the curve. That's what we've seen. But when people realize that inflation is now a, a, a new component when comparing this tightening cycle versus all the previous QEs, that, this, that the same trade should not be put on in terms of the flattening. And that I would say 120, 125, just as 175, 180 was the uh, upper end limit, 120, 125 is going to be the lower end. And I wouldn't be surprised if we were sort of back smack in the middle at 150 uh, over the next month or even sooner if uh, the inflation number CPI PCE print hot uh, over the next uh, three weeks, which I think they will. Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at the Bleakley Advisory Group and editor of the Book Report. Jack Farley, my co-host with the great follow-up questions. And of course, a lot of people asking about that Mario Gabelli interview, which members of Real Vision can see on the Real Vision app and at realvision.com. Thank you to you both. And we'll see you right here on The Daily Briefing tomorrow.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.